So James chapter 5, and I've titled the message, God Knows, what did I say? God feels your pain. God feels your pain. James chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this time that we have to be able to spend in your word. And Lord, the things that we don't understand, the things that we can't see beyond what you can see because of your perspective, Lord, I just pray that you would open up our eyes and just give us a glimpse of, of you and who you are and how you do what you do, Lord. And so we just lift this time up to you and we pray that you would bless it. We pray that you would open up our eyes, spiritually speaking. We pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. Piggyback on the announcements, uh, Joel Brown, Katya, and Amanda will be here next week. So be in prayer for them. They land on Thursday, and uh, so we want to be in prayer for them. James chapter 5. Here's where this comes from. Just let me give you guys, uh, let me talk to you. Uh, We went through the whole book of James. It was the first time that I ever got to teach the book of James. I've read it and, you know, scriptures... Uh, familiar with, but I, I never really taught it. Teaching a book does something different for me. I don't know if this works in everybody's life, but teaching a book causes me to go deeper into the book and, and what's being said within the book. And so going through the book of James, there are certain things that stood out that uh, as we were teaching, I wasn't really able to maybe communicate. And so I wanted to be able to teach on these two little verses right here and, and just break it down. Also, I'm preparing for my next uh, Bible college class that I'll be teaching in May, June, um, which will be the book of Galatians. So because of that, the, the church gets to go through the book of Galatians because whatever I'm teaching in the Bible class, I, I bring here because, again, I, I go in depth. It's 10 weeks of a five-chapter uh, book, three hours each session. So imagine that. That's a lot of teaching on five chapters And so because I'm going to be going so in-depth into that book, then I'll teach that uh, just to the congregation, right? Well, the book of Galatians, if you know anything about it, it's a book of grace. It's a book that just just goes against legalism. And I'm a legalist. I'm, I'm I'm a Pharisee in heart. I wish I wasn't. But because I struggle with pride and I think that I've got things figured out, and I really don't, but I think I do. Um, God has to break that down in me all the time. God is constantly teaching me lessons in humility and showing me that I really don't know very much and I really don't have very many things figured out. I like to think I do and I like to think that I have it together, but God is constantly showing me, son, you really don't watch. And then he shines a light on an area and I'm like, oh my God, I know nothing. I need so much help. And so... Teaching through the book of James, preparing for the book of Galatians, and then coming upon this scripture. Um, and then through counseling, I, I counsel a lot. I, I counsel with people and seeing their lives. And in the last couple years, I'm amazed at how many people are mad at God. How many people are angry with God? How many people are. Wanting to shake their fist at God. And these are Christians. And I stand back and I look at that and I think, well, God's perfect. 
God's got everything figured out. God knows your struggles. He knows your life. He knows the difficulties that you go through. Um, and so there's something that people who are mad at God don't understand. And so that's kind of where this study comes from. It comes from that, me, where I'm at, what I've been going through, um, the individuals that I've been meeting with. Again, just as I'm reflecting on these last few couple years of individuals who are, are truly mad at God. Um, and then I'm wondering, okay, I as a pastor maybe haven't done a good job to represent God in good light because we can't be mad at God. We can be mad at situations. We can be mad at circumstances, but uh, we can't be mad at God. And not because God can't take it, uh, but because we'll be wrong. We're just wrong to be mad at God. And so there, maybe there's something about God and about our lives and the difficulties and the sufferings that we go through that we need to clarify, that we need to come to an understanding with. So again, that's kind of the heart of this. Notice now with me, we went through the book of James, and these verses, two verses, stood out to me. Chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, the Bible says, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance... I'm sorry, verse 10. I read verse 11, didn't I? Verse 10, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure... You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So these two little verses you have in the first one, you have this idea of an example of suffering and patience, and then you notice in verse 11, perseverance. An example of suffering and patience, and then perseverance. As we went through the book of Job, you'll remember in chapter 1, It said, count it all joy, my brethren, when you go into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be thorough, complete, lacking nothing. And so the attitude of difficulties that we go through is supposed to be one of counting it all joy. Not for the difficulty, not for the struggle, not for the suffering, but because the intended result by God is going to be Patience on our part, endurance on our part. Somehow, God sees that within us, there's a lack of patience, a lack of the ability to persevere in life, and so he allows, does not cause, allows difficulties within our lives. And we're supposed to have an attitude of counting it all joy in the midst of that. And then in that First chapter of James, he turns a page and and it looks like he's talking about something entirely different where he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach. But let him ask in faith, not doubting. For he who doubts is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And and I look at that and I'm thinking, well, Lord, you're, you're talking about patient endurance through trials and counting it all joy because you're going to work something and develop something in me. And then why are you talking about wisdom? But the book of James continues to talk about wisdom. In chapter 3, it contrasts worldly wisdom to godly wisdom. And worldly wisdom is, or wisdom that isn't from God, if you will, is sensual, demonic, and 
What's the other thing? He says worldly. So you have the wisdom of the world, the knowledge, the understanding of how the world approaches life and looks at things. And he says, I want to contrast that because that's not what I want you to rely upon. That's not what I want you to look to. I don't want you to look to sensual or carnal wisdom or worldly wisdom or demonic, devilish, satanic wisdom. And that's everything that's not from God. But the wisdom that is from above, chapter 3 says, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield. And there's this incredible contrast between the wisdom of the world and my carnal nature, my, my flesh that wants things to look and go a certain way, and even that which is demonic, and then the Lord's wisdom. And he says, if there's confusion, then you want to be able to look to the Lord for this godly wisdom. It's all there. James chapter 3. And then he goes into James chapter 4, and he says, where do wars and fights come from? Don't they come from the members of your own body? You have and something with having you ask and you do not receive and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures you're selfish in your ways you're selfish in asking and 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 so again i'm just as i'm going through this book of james and i come to this individual job who is an example to us of what we're supposed to look like through the mist of what's going on. And he truly does demonstrate an incredible attitude as he goes through what I would declare probably the greatest suffering next to Jesus Christ himself on the earth. And this is not a fairy tale. This is a human being who is a godly man who goes through a very, very difficult series of things in his life. Turn to Job chapter 1 with me as we take a look at this individual Job who has given us as an example of suffering, patience, and perseverance. Job chapter 1. In Job chapter 1, we see an individual who is just a normal guy who has been incredibly blessed by God. He's blessed to have a family. He's blessed to be wealthy. He's blessed to oversee um, his business that produces just incredible monetary fulfilling blessings for him. And then there's this meeting in heaven and these angelic beings are in the presence of God and Satan, the adversary, shows up 
And God tells Satan, have you considered my servant Job? None like him on the earth. He's a blameless, upright man. He's a man that walks in integrity. And God incites Job, uh, God about Job, and he says, yeah, but I don't know if he fears you for anything. You've put a hedge around him. Remove that hedge, and he'll curse you to your face. And then God gives Satan permission and he removes a portion of the hedge. A hedge is like a barrier. And I just picture in our lives as his children, he has this protective barrier upon us. And so God removes a portion of that barrier. But what I'm impressed with is God is dictating how far Satan can go. As God asks Satan the question, where are you or where were you? I was roaming the earth going back to and fro. What does Satan do as he roams the earth going back to and fro? The Bible tells us. The devil roams around. He prowls around like a roaring lion, a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him steadfast in the spirit, the Bible encourages us. What is Satan doing in your life? He's roaming around seeking someone who he can devour. The Bible says in John 10.10 10, that the thief comes but to rob, kill, and destroy. He wants to destroy you. He doesn't want to tickle you. He doesn't want to tease you. He doesn't want to play with you. He wants to destroy you. And so in this picture, in Job chapter 1, we see God and the adversary and we see the purposes of Satan. And we look and we begin to indict God. God, how dare you? Can you play a game with Job's life? The critics will say. How, how could you do that in Job's life? To let the enemy do what he will. And as you read through and you continue to just go through chapter 1. Let's read a few verses. Let's see where I want to pick it up. Job goes through an incredible series, again, of, of just horrible things. Let's start in verse 13. Now, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and, don uh, and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came in and said, The fire of God fell down from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you, did the fire come from God? Fire came from Satan. But because it came from up, it, it looks like it's coming from heaven. It looks like it's coming from God. In James, the Bible says, let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt anyone with evil. Verse 17, while he was still speaking, 
Another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And I think in this room, if we were to um, get together and we would talk about the calamity, the difficulties, the struggling, the suffering, the pain that our lives have experienced, I don't think collectively, I don't think collectively we would come up with the pain that this one man has experienced on one day to lose all of his children in one day, to lose all of his wealth in one day, to lose all of his servants that he was providing something for in one day. Verse 20, Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. What is his response? He's going to mourn his loss, and he's going to fall on his face, and he's going to worship God. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. So at this point, no matter what's happening to Job, he's able to hold on to his integrity. He's able to look to God. He's able to say, I might not understand it, but God is worthy to be worshipped. You get into chapter 2 and... Very much the same thing is happening. Satan comes into the presence of God. They begin to dialogue. God points out that his son Job has held on to his integrity. Satan then turns it around and says, pound for pound, flesh for flesh, whatever a guy has in his own being, you remove that hedge of protection that you have on his physical body, he'll curse you to your face. God gives him permission. And says, you can have it that, but don't take his life. And so what Satan does is he gives him boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet and everywhere in between. So much pain and and suffering and agony that Job is in. He takes a, a piece of clay pot, if you will, and he uses it to scrape and to scratch in this physical calamity that he finds himself in yet holding on to his integrity. His wife comes and says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Why don't you just curse God? Job says, and we indict Job's wife, Mrs. Job, don't we? But you know what? Job's wife is going through difficulty as well. If her husband is going through this, she's facing it. She lost her children as well. She lost her means of income as well. Job's response to her is, you speak as a foolish woman. Shall we not expect good from the Lord and not calamity? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And again in all this, Job doesn't sin. In the end of chapter 2, you have three friends that come to Job and they see the level of pain, suffering, calamity, everything that he's going through. And they do the best thing that they do. In the whole book of Job, 
They do the best thing that they can. They just shut up and sit with him for seven days, saying nothing. And then you get into Job 3 through, oh my, 38 or so. And if you were to read through chapters 3 through 38, you have three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and whatever the other guy's name is. And they begin to pontificate. They begin to assess the situation. They begin to surmise, as does the world today, if you're struggling, if you're going through difficulty, I'll bet you it's probably your fault. I'll bet you we can trace something back in your life and we can point to why this bad thing is happening to you because that's just the law of the land. That's just the way life works, right? If something bad is happening, it's because you've done something bad and you're just getting what you deserve, if you will. And yet, that's not what's happening, is it? What's happening is above and beyond what they can see. And as impressive as Job is, we have to look beyond Job to God. And we truly have to be impressed. God is not sadistic wanting to see pain in the life of Job, in Job's life for nothing. God is not wishing, and in fact, God is not the author of any of this. It is what's taking place outside of God. Has God removed the hedge of protection? Yes. But for what purpose? For what reason? And as you continue to read through, you're going to see what that purpose and that reason is. If you were to summarize some of the scriptures, I'll read some of them to you. But Bildad, which one of Job's friend in Job chapter 8, verse 6, says, If you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake you and prosper you, your rightful dwelling place. Again, pointing to Job, blaming Job. In chapter 8, verse 20, the Bible says, Behold, God will not cast away the blameless, nor will he uphold evildoers. And so Job is, I mean, uh, Bildad here is, is pointing to Job as the problem. It's your fault, Job. This is why you're going through these difficulties. Job speaks to his friends in the midst of this in Job chapter 13, verse 4, and he says, You forgers of lies, you are worthless physicians. You, you, are, you are worthless doctors. You guys can't even diagnose and, and give me a solution for what's going on. You're worthless. But yet in the midst of all that's going on and all of this pontificating and going back and forth, Job holds on to his faith. In chapter 16, verse 19, the Bible says, Surely even now my witness is in heaven and my evidence is on high. In chapter 19, verse 25, the Bible says, For I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. Jump over to the end of Job. Job chapter 38 with me. Back and forth they go, and then all of a sudden God kind of steps in, if you will, into the scene, into the drama. And, and I want you to take this into consideration. This is where I have seen people go wrong. This is where I have seen people go bad. You have an event that takes place in your life. 
It brings a trial. It brings with it suffering. It brings difficulty. And in the midst right there, when that thing takes place, you begin to look to the Lord. Hopefully you you begin to pray. You begin to cry out, call out. And then there's a moment of silence from God. There's nothing being received as far as you can tell. Because that's what's taking place, if you will, in chapters 3 through 38. Job isn't hearing from God. And his three friends and then his other friend that's added to the mix later on, there's nothing coming from God. There is this moment, if you will, of silence from heaven. And then Job speaks. I mean, God begins to speak directly to Job in chapter 38. Notice verse 1 through 3. It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. So all these questions have been taking place. And God now shows up and he says, I'm going to ask you some questions. And I want you to answer me. And then God begins to show his sovereignty. His incredible creative wisdom. And he shoots these questions at Job that Job can in no way answer. Jump over to chapter 40. Notice verses 1 and 2. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Then notice verses 6 and 7. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. And so now God is speaking. Now God is beginning to address Job and his situation. And Job is blown away because Job begins to see a part of God that he never knew existed. Job begins to see an aspect of his creator who he had integrity for. He loved and and truly. Job, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but Job is the first book written in the Bible. We know Genesis points to the beginning, but the first book placed into the canon The first book we believe to be written is the book of Job. So Job takes us way back to the scene with God and his creation. And God does not change. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so as you you look at this encounter, you realize that God, in the midst of what the enemy wants to do, and mean for evil, and mean for bad, and mean to destroy us, and to rob us, and to just take away from our lives, whether it be in the temporal or even eternal, we see God having this ability to do what no other person, no other thing can do, where he's taking the very evil that is meant by the, the devil, by, that is that the very suffering and catastrophic events that are going on in our lives, and we don't see a disconnected God. We don't see a God that is far removed from his creation, from his children. We see a God that is doing something purposeful and meaningful and, and to bring more depth to the life of the individual, more blessings to the life of the individual. And we look at God, and how is he able to do that is unique to God alone. And you go to the end of 
Job chapter 41. I'm sorry, 42. Starting at verse 1, the Bible says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything, and though no purpose of yours can be withheld from you, you asked, Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of your ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And so it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord then goes to speak to his friends and bring an indictment. What is Job saying? Lord, I heard of you. I heard about your wonders. I've heard about your greatness. But Lord, now my eyes see you. Job is walking away with a greater understanding of who his God is. That had he not gone through these difficulties, he never would have known. And there's no way, I wish we can just just learn these lessons through like a classroom, right? Correspondence courses. But some, for some reason, just humanity can't. We have to go through the difficult things to be able to see God in a light. We have to go through impossible things to watch God do what we can't do. We have to go through things where we come to the end of ourselves, where there's no more, where it's done, it's over, and then God shows up and we see God in a new light. We begin to experience God in a way that we've never experienced, and we look at that and we say, only God. Only God can take something so destructive, so worthless, so wicked and wretched, and, and, and resurrect, if you will, beauties from ashes. Life where things were dead. God counsels the friends of Job in judgment. Get Job to offer a sacrifice for you or I'm not going to receive you. You guys are talking trash. You don't know what you're talking about. At least my servant Job has held on to his integrity. And then verse 12. Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first. Gives the name, verse 15. And all the land were found no Women so beautiful as the daughters of Job, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. So Job died old and full of days. And so the critics that criticize God for the book of Job and what God allowed to take place in the beginning of Job failed to understand that God had an intended purpose when it was all said and done. That God meant to do something to bless Job with something that he didn't have and he wouldn't have had had he not gone through these difficulties. And I'm here to say that God is doing the same thing in our lives. The beauty of Philippians 1.6 is God is indicting himself to say, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. It takes pressure off of everybody to just let God do 
the work that he's begun. And if God has begun a work in you, best believe God is going to complete the work in you. Now, to the extent that we cooperate and participate is an interesting thing because God is not usurping our free will. Did God at any point usurp Job of his free will? Never. Job was making choices, decisions, in the pain, in the midst of what he was going through. But somehow we see through Job this example of an individual that persevered through suffering. And that's what God calls us to in the midst of that. On Wednesday nights, we're going through the book of Numbers. And we find ourselves in Numbers chapter 13 and 14 right now. 15 will be this week. The nation of Israel is standing at the door of the promised land, if you will. The land of Canaan. Kadesh Barnea. Hope, Kadesh. Barnea, wilderness or wandering. They find themselves at a crossroad. So we find ourselves so often in life at a crossroads. Which path are we going to take? Are we going to take the walk of faith that leads to hope in our life? Or are we going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until we figure it out and get it? Choice is ours. God doesn't force us. He wants us to walk by faith. He wants us to trust that he knows what he's doing. He wants us to look at him, look to him in a different way. I find it interesting that God uses Moses to birth something in the nation of Israel where God says he's going to destroy the nation and he'll be again new and fresh with Moses. And I, started, I wrote this little thing down. It says, all answered prayer is birthed in the heart of God. Moses prays and intercedes on behalf of the nation of Israel and says, no, God, your reputation would be online. You can't wipe them out. And God says, all right, then I'm going to have them die in the wilderness, that first generation. But he doesn't wipe them out. Answered prayer to Moses. I just, that's an interesting little nugget that, as you look through that. So, we find ourselves at a crossroad in our walk with the Lord over and over. And what are you going to do? What am I going to do? Are you going to walk by faith? Or are you going to lean on the arm of flesh? The arm of your understanding. The arm of your being able to figure life out. At what point, if you haven't done so recently, do you begin to understand that God loves you? That God has a plan for you? That God wants to blow you away with what this plan is for your life and bless you with more than you can ever think or imagine? At what point do you begin to apprehend that and take that in and just say, Lord, with reckless abandon, I will follow after you. Come what may come. James chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, in the context of what we just studied, my brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. What was God's perspective? What was God's ultimate end in Job's life? What was God trying to do as Satan comes and incites God to remove this hedge? God wanted to be compassionate with Job and God wanted to show him mercy. 
Because though we look at Job and we say, wow, that's an incredible example of a godly man. Did you know that God wants to take every single one of us further in the things of God? And so it doesn't matter where you're at in contrast or comparison to another person in the body of Christ. But God is intent on wanting to take you and I further in a relationship with him. Where we would learn more of him that we don't know. Where we would learn more of ourselves, so that we can be more dependent upon him. And so that he can feel for us in the midst of what we're going through because he can minister to us in the midst of our pain and suffering like nobody or nothing else can. Compassion. And then he wants to not give us what we deserve. That's mercy. He wants to bestow that love upon us as his children in the midst of those things. And so guys, challenge and the encouragement is to get to know God more and more. Not to shy away from getting to know God. But the more you learn about this incredible creator, for me personally, it just, I was sharing earlier today, it just reveals how wicked I am. It reveals how stubborn I can be. It reveals how prideful I am. And yet in the midst of that, God just wants to continue to love me and grow me and reveal more of himself to me. And, in, and, 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 and on top of all that, to bless me? God, I'm not worthy of those blessings. God, there's no reason for you to do these good things in my life and towards me. And it, it just, it, it forces us, it, it just causes us to look to God and to be thankful and grateful and say, Lord, I don't like this ugly stuff. Can you help me with it? Can you transform me? Can you change me? Can you just continue to not give up on me, Lord? Just please don't give up on me. Continue to endure with me, Lord. Continue to be patient with me. But I want to participate. I want to cooperate. Father, we thank you for your word and for your ways and for who you are. And Lord, we recognize that you are past our finding out. Your ways are above our ways. Your thoughts beyond just anything we can think. That finite man that has an end can study an infinite God and tap into tiny little nuggets of truth of who you are and what you do is an incredible blessing. And I pray, Lord, that we would never tire of studying who you are and what you do and what you desire to do in our lives. So Father, we just pray that you can soften our hearts, that you can increase our faith, that you can cause us to look to you and trust you more and more each day. On a daily basis, you give us opportunities to look to you. I pray that we would take advantage of those. Thank you for your ways, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.